Okay, for our message now, it will be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It's entitled, The Peace That Surpasses All Understandings. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is, on another beautiful Sabbath day. Chilly, but beautiful Sabbath day. And you left your tape up here, uh, Steve, but I... I remember these uh, cassette tapes uh, years ago. Uh, I think it was my, uh, I think it was my grand. No, I think it was maybe an aunt I had that uh, uh, had these and scored. But nowadays, nowadays you can you can get them online, right? I mean, you can do them, you know, di- digitally or MP3 or you know, get them on iTunes or something like that. But I do remember uh, years ago listening to Alexander Scorby. Uh, with those audio Bibles. So today, uh, as was mentioned, my message is entitled The Peace That Surpasses All Understanding. And we know that you know, we're gathered here as we do week in, week out uh, for services because it's, of course, God's Sabbath. And we know that God commands us to keep his Sabbath. And it's a day that's been made holy and consecrated. And he created the, the world in six days. And on that seventh day, he rested. And so we know all that, we know what goes into that, and he commands us to rest from our you know, physical jobs and the toils that we go through six days a week, but we have to probably be honest, or if we are probably honest with ourselves, we know that it's not just the physical jobs that we do in life where we toil, right? We have stresses, we have worries, we live in this world that seems to be constantly and ever-increasingly negative. And it's hard to get away from all of that, even on the Sabbath day, unless we are extremely purposeful. Unless we really make sure that we're focused and locked in. And of course, the things I'm going to talk today to you about, they're not easy things. It's, it's really a message that I'm wanting to give to provide you with some encouragement I know that uh, in my life, in the job that I work, and the time and phase of life that I'm in, that there's lots of stresses, and I'm sure that you can relate to that as well. And so today, I just stumbled upon some passages in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Just a few passages. I have four points of reflection today. This is probably going to be a shorter message. No one's ever complained about that, probably. But I want to read Philippians, the fourth chapter, verses four through seven, and I have four points today for us to think about. And let me remind you, these points, these exhortations that Paul's given us, they're simple in terms of understanding what he's saying, but they're not so simple in terms of implementing them into our lives. Paul says at the very end of this letter that he's writing to this congregation in which he founded on his second missionary journey he says this in verse 4 of Philippians the fourth chapter he says rejoice in the Lord always again I say rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with the thanksgiving with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
And so my first main point is just simply that what Paul says in verse 4. And he says it twice. He says, rejoice in the word and in, in the Lord always. And this word rejoice is a Greek word that's Cairo and Robert Muntz, who's a uh, Greek expositor, says that this word means to be glad, to be joyful, to be full of joy. And it's interesting that Paul says this twice. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And this double emphasis probably is because Paul knew that when he said this to these individuals here at Philippi, that there probably was going to be some sort of kickback in their minds. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe whenever someone says something like, hey, you need to do this, but you're like, but... How can I do this because of maybe some sort of excuse? Maybe he knew that they would be saying, but Paul, how can we rejoice with the things that we're going through? With the tribulations that we're experiencing, with the difficulties that we are having presented to us in our lives. And so Paul obviously is trying to, you know, uh, you know predict maybe what they're thinking in their minds. And of course, there probably were reasons that this group of people may have experienced discouragement. Attacks from those outside. During this time, this individual that was uh, named Paul, who founded this group, he was in prison. And so in their minds, they might be thinking, how can we rejoice? You've been arrested, you're in prison. Maybe there's illnesses from certain believers within the church. Maybe some have died. There are quarrels when we read the letter. Divisions, to some extent, within this congregation. But Paul's exhortation, as I mentioned, is simple. Rejoice in all things. In the good times and in the bad times. And although our lives are probably a little different than these individuals that Paul's talking to in the first century, we're still humans and we still live on this same planet. We still have flesh and blood and we still have to wake up every day and go through this life and are subjected to the natural elements, have to go to work, provide for ourselves or our families, face different tribulations, different trials, different troubles. Maybe you, right at this very moment, are facing something very difficult. Maybe you have personal issues that you're going through. Maybe you're having troubles at work. Maybe you're having financial struggles. Maybe you're having relationship problems in your marriage, with family members, with your children, with friends. Maybe you have health problems going on, or a loved one does. Maybe you struggle with mental health to some extent, or depression. We have, in this life, undoubtedly, troubles. And it's interesting because back during the Passover season, one of the things that really struck out, and I've read this passage so many times, but for some reason, this past Passover, and here we are like six months removed, seven months removed from when we took the Passover, we always read those chapters in John. And we read those words that Jesus is telling his followers, his, his disciples there, before he's tried and arrested and tried and crucified. But he says this at the end of chapter 16, verse 33, which is so true. And we probably experienced this to be true. He says this, these things, those things he was telling his disciples, about the days ahead, about what the world's going to be like to them. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble. 
But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Those are some true words. Not just because we see that Jesus says them, but because probably all of us have experienced this. This world's difficult. It's hard to live in this life. And even though there's good times, there's also bad times. And many of us have probably experienced both. And maybe you're experiencing a bad time right now. And this message, I just want to say, is for you. It's for all of us. But I want all of us to understand, no matter the good times or the bad times, Paul is telling us to rejoice, and there's a reason for it. So as I mentioned, Paul exhorts us to always rejoice. And it's not easy. And I want us to just think, you know, we've heard that psalm before. Psalm 118, verse 24. A lot of times you see this on plaques, like whenever... You know, you go into someone's house, like it's maybe on a, a mantle or something like that. But Psalms 118, verse 24 says, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And as I reflect on the different phases of my life, I have come to realize one thing. Life doesn't really get any easier as you get older. It really doesn't. And in fact, it's interesting, all phases of life seem to bring their own respective difficulties and they produce their own respective fears and worries. And it seems like as we age, really what's happening is, is that we just exchange our troubles for other troubles. Maybe whenever we're teenagers, what we worry about, what we fret about, what we stress about is, you know, being liked or getting friends. And as we move into young adulthood, of course, those stresses maybe turn into who are we going to meet? Are we going to find someone to spend our life with? What job or what occupation should I do for a living? Then you go into full adulthood and your, your perspective changes, your experiences changes, and all of a sudden your stresses are not necessarily on yourself, but you start worrying about your kids and if they're going to be okay. And if you're going to maybe be able to continue to care for them, to provide for them. And it's, you know, subconsciously as I was thinking about this, I think that growing up, you know, I'm 38 now and, and, and by no means, you know, lived a life to make me considered wise in any way, shape, or form. But I think that subconsciously I actually thought that, you know, like when you got older, there would be a point in time where you'd like made it. Like, you know, you kind of put down all those silly worries and you're mature and you're wise and you don't really worry about anything anymore. And I realized that that's really not true. And I think that everyone in here would probably agree with that, that life is this constant exchanging of one set of troubles for another set of troubles. But there is something I have learned. I feel like I've lived long enough not just to learn that, but maybe learn one other thing. And I really, truly, I'm not just giving you lip service. I'm not just trying to tell you something that's cliche. But there's one thing that I have come to realize, and that is our perspective on life is a habit. Our perspective on life is a habit. We have a choice in life to either focus on the negative or focus on the positive. We have a choice to look at things from the, either from the perspective of the glass half full or the glass half empty. And I want to be first to admit, I have oftentimes miserably failed 
at having a perspective that focuses on the positive. Many times in my life, and frequently, weekly, probably daily, there are times where my mind just wants to go to the worst case scenario, wants to go to the negative. And what I've realized is when I allow, to do th- allow myself to do that, when I allow those stresses to get the best of me, it robs me of having truly that rejoicing mindset that Paul talks about. I know it sounds cliche, as I just mentioned, but I truly believe that when we are in a rejoicing mindset, it makes it harder for us to complain, worry, and be fearful, and easier for us to stay positive and reflect on what God has done for us. Because he has done so much for us. And it, it, we're blinded to that when we focus on the negative. When we allow ourselves to be consumed by the stresses that this life brings. My second main point is from verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all. And that's what the scripture says. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And this word gentleness is somewhat difficult to translate because there is no equivalent English word that can bring out the full connotation from the Greek. It's the Greek word apikis, and I'm probably not pronouncing that accurately, and it means to be gentle, yielding, kind, forbearing, and lenient. And it's been said by many Bible commentators that this word has come to mean or comes to mean yielded rights. Yielded rights or ready to forgive. Meaning when someone wrongs you and you have a reason to be angry and to retaliate, you yield this right and are ready to forgive. And I'm telling you what, when you think about it, this is exactly how God has treated all of us. He has yielded that right through that blood of Christ and poured it on Him and not on us. When we truly are Uh, deserving of not being forgiven. The rejoicing that Paul speaks of before this passage, I believe, is a prerequisite to being gentle. That gentleness, that yielding of one's rights. If we think about it, you know, when there's times that, you know, uh, that we are not rejoicing, that we're angry, that's probably you know, not times that we're going to be displaying gentleness. You know, when we are displaying the opposite of gentleness that Paul is encouraging us to display, we're probably not going to be rejoicing. You probably need to have a rejoicing mindset before you can truly have a gentle demeanor. If we look at just a few chapters before this, Philippians, the second chapter, verse 5 through 8, We read these words about Christ. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And we could expound on those words for days and weeks and years. So much there. But it shows the true nature and humility of Christ Jesus and what he did for us. What he did for us. And in short, Paul is of course commanding our conduct and attitude towards all people to be one like Christ 
a gentle one. And when I say Christ-like or our attitude and our demeanor to be a Christian one, I mean in its fullest. To be a person who genuinely follows Christ's example as we displayed or as was displayed in that passage that we just read. That our minds are linked to the mind of Christ and it leads us to truly and genuinely treat people in a manner in which is worthy of that attitude, that mindset that's in Christ. As Jesus, of course, treated others, as we see examples, as he's treated us, we have to ask ourselves, are we demonstrating that gentleness to all people like Christ has demonstrated to us? And in thinking about this gentleness of Christ, we know that there were, of course, appropriate times when Christ would have righteous indignation, have a righteous rebuke. But when we go back to the Gospels and we read the stories about Jesus, so often we see that Jesus, he wasn't like the people of his day. He was kind of an anomaly, right? He was kind of a contradiction in the way he would approach things, the way that he would react to things and people and situations. He didn't react in the same manner that most people thought that in their minds, a truly righteous person should react. Children would come to him in the midst of his work, and he would embrace them. Now, when we read that, we think, well, of course, why wouldn't he do that? Well, if you understood the time, times in which Jesus lived in, you would understand that that was a pretty big deal because so many religious leaders held themselves in high esteem above people who they considered inferior to themselves. Likewise, Gentiles or Roman officials would come to him and seek his help, and he would have compassion for them. Most of the contemporaries of his day probably wouldn't want, you know, that were considered religious leader, probably didn't want to have anything to do with a Gentile, an unclean Gentile. They're deserving of the problems that they're going through. Sinners would implore him, and he would talk, dine, and fellowship with them. Of course, he would not condone their behaviors. He was not condoning their sin, but... A good illustration is the calling of Matthew or Levi in Luke the 5th chapter. Let's go there real quick to Luke the 5th chapter. I just want to read this real quick. Verse 27. He says this in Luke 5 verse 27. After these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. We know that individual to be the, the one whom we call Matthew. Sitting at the tax office. And not going to go into it, but this is one of the most hated groups among contemporary Jews of Jesus' day. And for some of it, might have been rightfully so. They were looked at as traitors, people who sold out, and that were benefiting off of the backs of their own people. And he said to him, follow me, Jesus said to Levi, or Matthew. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Verse 29, then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In their minds, a tax collector was synonymous with a sinner because of the engagement of the practice of extortion that they were putting on people. And verse 31, Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And one thing we learn is we're all part of that group called sinners. None of, none of us were righteous. 
none of us. Jesus' gentleness won people over. He was the ultimate demonstration about being concerned for others. And in this case, Levi or Matthew became a follower of Jesus, not because Jesus rebuked him, but because Jesus' invitation and his life demonstrated that what he was preaching, that message he was sending, was authentic and was genuine. And we are to show this patience, this love, this long-suffering, the graciousness and selflessness, just as Christ has shown to us, to all people. And we think about the mercy and grace that was displayed upon us. There's no justification whatsoever, no logical justification of Christians treating people any other way, knowing what Christ has done for us and what God has put up with us. And as I mentioned, who are we to show this to? All people. I think that's important. Because I think it's kind of easy sometimes to go through life and have preference, right? You know, he doesn't say just treat Christians this way. It's not just the brother, not just people who are kind to us, not just people who we prefer or who we like or friends or family. All men, all people. Our annoying neighbors, our rude boss, that individual who cut you off on the way to church or the way to work, all people. And we understand, as I mentioned, it's not easy, it's difficult. All people we are to show this gentleness to. In all situations, as Christians, if we're truly wanting to have the mind of Christ and be representative of that spirit that we've been given we will focus on having that gentleness to all people and it's in my opinion a part of the formula that's pictured in Matthew 5 the sermon on the mount when we read it where Jesus kind of presents the full intent of the law let's go to Matthew the fifth chapter real quick and just read a few verses because I think it applies here to this idea of being gentle to all men verse 43 of Matthew, the fifth chapter says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This must have been pretty revolution, revolutionary for the people who were hearing this. Because he was saying some pretty difficult things. These are the opposite reactions. That's natural to us as carnal human beings. Verse 45. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you. What reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Interesting that he actually, in this case, puts the tax collectors in that same boat as we talked about. For that group of people that you were accusing me, or later will accuse me of dining with, is mentioned here in Jesus' words. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And just think about what this does to someone. And I know that this isn't a perfect analogy, but I think that this, you know, uh, message, this teaching of Jesus 
has practical positive implications. Now, again, there are going to be people that are rude to you and that persecute you. And when you continue to show a gentle demeanor towards them, it's not going to do that much for them. But I still think by and large, when our response is gentle, I think that it does kind of confound people's attitude towards you. And of course, this isn't in every single case, but many times when someone is being a thorn in your side and you still show kindness towards them, despite their attitude and actions, does in not many instances, in my opinion it does, work to our benefit. It might make people relent a little bit. It might make people maybe think twice about what they're doing, maybe self-reflect. And let me put it this way. If this hasn't worked in your life, let's think about it in the reverse. Have you ever been rude or impatient with someone yourself? Have you ever treated someone maybe unkindly? Maybe you were angry, and maybe it was right, rightfully so. And what I mean by that is maybe they really did do something to wrong you in some way. Have you ever experienced this when you acted like this towards someone and they were gentle back to you? Because I have before, and I can tell you it doesn't really uh, leave me feeling very good. It leaves me feeling pretty guilty, pretty harsh. It almost becomes a self-inflicted chastisement, at least for me, as I'm left not feeling very good about myself. Being gentle to all people is a part of our testimony as Christians and is truly, I believe, a evidence of our sanctification, that we are set apart. We're not like everyone else. That truly that idea of love is not just speaking not just words. Because as Christ said, if we have an attitude of retaliation, you know, if you only love, what reward do you have if only you treat your neighbor rightly? Only those people you like. If you have this attitude, well, you know what? They're going to get it. They're going to get theirs. When people wrong me, they better watch out. They better watch out because I make sure that I always get revenge. Well, how are we any different than how this world is? How are we any different than, you know, the, 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 the ways of carnality, the ways that, you know, if we're just going to go with the natural inclinations of what's living on this world or in the, on this planet and, and this flesh, how are we truly displaying that mind of Christ who looks at others before they think of themselves? Why? This is a question I'm asking us. Why is Paul saying this is so important? He leaves two words or three words at the very end of that second passage that we looked at. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Paul affirms his reasoning for the need to act gentle because the Lord is at hand. Which means the Lord is near. Now there's two ways that we can take this and I think both are true. The first one is that the Lord is near in time. Now we don't know, you know, time is, you know, time is, is definitely, you know, quantifiable, right? But what's long and what's short is kind of a perspective thing. We, we don't know when the Lord is going to return. So many people have tried to predict that and it's futile. 
And we've seen the people who go that way. We don't know when the Lord is going to return. But we know that Paul, he's saying the Lord is near, and he could be referring to the Lord is near in time, referring to the imminent return of Jesus. And upon his return, the Lord is near. He's not coming like he came the first time around. This time around, he's coming as the righteous judge who will hold all responsible for their deeds. But the other way of looking at this is that the Lord is near in space. It could be that Paul is saying that Christ is near by means of his continual presence with us. That in spirit, Christ is living in us, and we are to act as he is physically present in all of our doings, both in church and outside of church, because he is. He's not in a, you know, heaven's not just this concept. He's at the right hand of God. It's far off. It's a situation that we have to remember that he's in us, that he's changing us, that he's present with us. He hears all. He sees all, he knows our thoughts, and even the deepest intents of our hearts. Now, at this time, you know, it's difficult to understand exactly what Paul is getting at. Most likely, he's probably talking about the Lord is near in time. But both concepts are true. He is present with us, and his return is imminent. And, of course, as we've mentioned before many times, his return could be as close as our own death. We don't know if he's actually going to return before we die, but we know that for all those people who fall asleep, who pass away, in their minds, in the next instant that they're going to acknowledge is the return of Christ, is the eternal kingdom of God that will be established on this earth. My main point three, be still and at peace. Philippians 6, or chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, I'm just going to reread that real quick. Verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so Paul is exhorting us, again, a difficult thing, to not be anxious, but instead to replace our anxiousness with prayer and supplication, with prayer and petitions to God. And of course, we have to ask the question, what's the result of anxiety? Of course, it's fear, it's fretfulness, it's worry, and it's the opposite of trust and faith. And when we worry in a manner in which Paul is talking about, and I'm thinking that he's talking about when we worry in a way where we're not consulting God, unfortunately, I think that we are saying that God is not enough to fix our problems. We are saying that we don't trust God when we're not taking our problems to him. And it's understandable, of course, that worrying is a you know, natural response. I mean, living in this flesh, we even see Jesus have anxieties right before he was crucified. It's a natural response to the things that are coming upon us in life. And we know that there's, there's a healthy level of worry or concern when we go through this life. I don't think Paul is saying that we just go through life without any care, but I think he is talking about worrying in a manner that leaves out the perspective of who we are in Christ Jesus. As he goes on in these verses, he says, to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, 
with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And I think this applies to the big things in our lives and the small things. You know, it's easy sometimes to forget the small things, right? I think that I've definitely been extremely guilty of that, that we think that, well, those, that's a mundane thing. God doesn't really care about that. I'm not going to take that to God. I just need to get over that myself. Man, I'm, I'm almost, it's almost like you're embarrassed. Oh, God, I can't believe I'm taking this to you. You know, this small little thing, you got all these things to worry about. I'm taking this little minor, minute thing that's bothering me. God wants us to take all of our things to him. No matter what we go through, we cannot let the faith-corrupting reactions of anxiety, fearfulness, and worry rule over us. I want every one of us in here, just real quick, just to think, and maybe you already have done this. Think of something that you've went through before. Maybe it's something that you really had a lot of anxiety over. I want you to think about what that did in your life. I want you to think about how much joy that anxiety, that that worry robbed you of. I want you to think about how much it dimmed your interest, the things that you enjoy in life, your productivity, maybe your job, maybe things that you're trying to accomplish. Time with family and friends. And of course, even time with God. And equally, think about maybe the results it had with your focus on Christ. On what you've been put on this earth to do. On this plan that you've been invited to through Christ. This, this plan of salvation. This, this kingdom of God that God has invited you to come to. I want you to think about that because it's interesting because one of the things when we read the letters of Paul and pretty much the whole Bible, but especially in the letters of Paul, he draws these two parallel lines, right? And he talks about this life that we're living here in, in the here and now and how this life is full of problems. But the difference is, is this, this life is temporary. And so we have the fact, we have this promise that we live on this planet with this temporary dwelling that we're in that has all these different problems that we may face that are on the horizon, the good news, of course, with what Jesus did for us, the gospel message that he died and rose again for our sins, and we have this, this, uh, this invitation to this kingdom that God's going to bring to this earth through his son, Jesus Christ. We've been given this promise on the same time, this fact that we know we live on this earth that's full of problems and, and all of that, but it's temporary compared to the reality of this eternal life that we're going to have that's completely trouble-free. It's sometimes, I think, difficult in the midst of trials, in the midst of problems, in the midst of things that we're going through to keep that at the forefront of our minds. I heard this quote from an article I read on this scripture summing up in essence what Paul is saying. Again, way much easier said than done. But essentially Paul is saying, worry about nothing, pray about everything. Difficult. How do you do that? How do you accomplish that? I think you can only accomplish that by those petitions, that supplication, that crying out to God and pleading with him to show you 
that peace that surpasses all understanding. It's interesting how Paul inserts this phrase, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. I think, you know, understanding why Paul says this lies in what he said in the beginning of verse 6 when he says, be anxious for nothing, and it means to be concerned about. The first human response, of course, when we're concerned about something is thinking. Thinking. When we are concerned about something, though, is our first response to think about how we're going to come up with a solution? Or is our first response, I need to get to God about this. I need to bring this to God. Because I can tell you that, again, going back to that idea, our perspective on life is a habit. I don't think that you just wake up one day, okay, every time I have a problem now, I'm going to immediately take it to God. I think that you have to be purposeful in doing this. You have to train yourself to do this. And I think that maybe you can relate to this. So many times when I have something I'm going through, my immediate automatic reaction, just self-admitting, is, man, how can I resolve this? What do I need to do? What do, what do I need to do to fix this? And it's not always, God, help me out here. Let me, let me just not think about some solution. Let me just meditate and take it to you. Now, God doesn't want you to just say, well, hey, you're not going to think about this, in my opinion. You're not going to think about this. He's not saying don't think, don't use your brain, but he's saying reflect on it. Take it to to me. Let me help mold the ways that you think about these things. I want to go to Ephesians, the third chapter, just real quick and read this, uh, this passage. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And the reason I wanted to just quickly bring that verse out, and I'm kind of skipping through some of the things that I wrote down here just for the sake of time, is because it just shows you the access that we have to the God of the universe that has that understanding beyond anything that us as human beings could ever comprehend. And so... When we think about our problems, think about the access that we have to the God above who knows all and is capable of all and wants the best for us. He wants, us to, he wants to be the solution. Now, it's true, and I think there's another side of this that we have to think about. Sometimes the things that we go through may be God-ordained. Not because God's cruel. Because there's sometimes God's wanting us to learn something through a situation, through a trial. But he will see us through it. And he will, as my last point, give us the result if we follow this pattern that Paul presents us, and that is God's peace will guard our hearts. Verse 7, we're going to read that again. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And this is a promise. This is a promise. If we make a decision to pray about our worries, to focus on God, then we need to believe that God's going to give us that peace that surpasses all understanding. This peace will be guarded in our hearts and minds. And I would like to add that this word guard that we see here Paul use It's actually a military term, meaning a sentry or watcher. And in ancient times, these individuals, these sentries or these watchers, 
would act as a guard or sentry to protect and spy out any potential intruders. And sometimes they would, you know, set up on in high you know, platforms and, you know, maybe there's a wall of a city and things like that and they're sitting there looking over the horizon for any potential intruders that are trying to maybe invade the city. And this is what Paul is using here. And many of these individuals living in Philippi probably were retired soldiers. And a lot of that is because this Philippi was a Roman province, became a Roman province or colony. And it actually, some of these individuals who would retire, uh, part of their retirement plan was getting citizenship, or not citizenship, they already had that, uh, but getting a piece of this place called Philippi. And so they would understand this. They would understand this military jargon. And so when these things, and Paul, that Paul had exhorted us, when he says this, that will guard your mind, he's talking about metaphorically, spiritually, that these things, that there would be a watcher for an intruder, for intruding thoughts. When we do these things, that the peace of God, it will become a guard to watch all those different things that could tr- possibly intrude our mind. And if we don't, it's just like the, 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 the sentry or the soldiers off duty. And potential intruders may have free range and anxiety may have free range. So in conclusion, I would encourage and like to encourage all of us to set our minds on the many blessings that we have been given by God. And there are many blessings, and we have Thanksgiving coming up, and there's so many different things in me personally that I have to be thankful for. I'd like for us to resolve to live a life that rejoices. Make a decision to fight against negative thoughts. Make a decision to fight against dwelling on negative stress and the problems in our life, and make a decision to take those things to God to take those things to God. And understandably, this isn't something that's easy. This is difficult. We live in this world that constantly tries to surround us with the negativity. And then we have to live in it. And we have to work in it. And we have to be around this negativity. And it can become sometimes overwhelming. Make a decision to take everything to God, small and big. Make a decision to seek out that peace. That peace that is provided by by God through Christ. That God will give us. I want to close on something really positive. I think the next few verses after verse 7, I didn't get into this as far as like expounding upon it. But with all the negative things that do go on in life and the negative experiences that sometimes we have and Uh, you know, the stresses of life, I want to leave us with verses 8 through 9, which I think that, you know, with the the things that we experience and trying to end on a positive note, uh, it kind of, and I'm not just saying this, it kind of warms my heart to think about these things because if there's anything that we need, I feel like, we need lots of things, you know, but that's a break from this negative world that just seems to be ever increasingly negative. He says in verse 8 of chapter 4 of the Philippians, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, 
If there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you.